Tonight, we are continuing our series of studies on the men of Matthew. I think we're actually going to have one more week of this. Uh, And we've talked about a lot of different men and a lot of different people out of the book of Matthew. But tonight, we're going to do something really a little bit different because uh, as we do this, we're we're really, what we're going to do is, is, what we're going to look at is, it's more like a series of slides or photographs, if you will, uh, flashcards of some scenes one after another. So we're not looking at one person tonight. We're going to be looking at several. And I'm not trying to make a theme out of all of them uh, or, or I'm not even necessarily trying to, you know, we're just going to go through them in order and just look at them. And uh, because we're looking at different cameos, different uh, characters in the crucifixion of Jesus. And, and we're just going to go through this list of people, you know, number one, number two, number three. And I believe God has something for us tonight. If you study the history of cinema, one of the things that you're going to find is that you'll discover that there are a great many uh, big-time actors, both on the screen, screen and, in, in, and on Broadway, that have, uh, over the years, taken a delight in playing little cameo roles. You know, it, it's sort of almost an odd, eccentric thing. Sometimes they've, they, they've even done it for union wages, um, big stars who would just appear in, in a movie like as a guy carrying a suitcase. That would be the character uh, carrying a suitcase through an airport or a desk clerk somewhere. Uh, in one movie, Jerry Lewis, at, at the peak of his career, making millions and millions and millions of dollars per year, he appeared in a scene in a movie that, that only lasted a split second, and he was the driver of an automobile that ran over a man's hat in the middle of the road. He was there and then he was gone. And that was all he was. That was the only scene in the entire movie that he had. And that was at the peak of his career. You know, it makes you wonder, what what would make an actor do something like that? Or uh, Alfred Hitchcock. He had 40 cameo appearances in his completed 54 feature films. Every Alfred Hitchcock movie I watch, I'm trying to look to see if I, where he shows up. Because he's in almost every single one of them. Well, those small insignificant roles are called cameo appearances. They, they appear, you know, just an outline or a flash of a face or, you know, just a smile so that the audience almost at a subliminal level says, oh, Gregory Peck or, oh, Burt Lancaster. I'm showing my age now by choosing these guys, you know. Um, wow, Alfred Hitchcock, you know, he, there he is carrying the birdcage through the shop. And it's, and it's just like a flashbulb effect. Well, tonight what I want to do is I want to talk to you about cameos at the cross, cameos at the crucifixion event, some for good and some for ill. Now, we don't know the names of most of these people, and they they don't generally ever appear again in Scripture or in history. Their their significance in in earth-shaking, history-shaping events is extremely limited. However, each one of these Little slides shows uh, uh, that's, that's, that's going on at the foot of the cross seems to be just, just about pregnant with implications for our lives. So I'm just going to share them with you in order, and I believe the Holy Spirit will help you make some sense of what, whatever we say tonight. So the first is found in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 27. This is what it says. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him 
And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the, the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put, on his own clothes, put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. After, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. So the first cameo appearance that we're looking at tonight is made by a man named Simon from Cyrene. Now, Cyrene was a city and a region at that time in North Africa near, near Carthage. And for that reason, in most dramatic or artistic renderings of Simon the Cyrene, he's considered to be a black man. However, the truth is we, we don't know that. He may well have been black. However, his, his name was Simon, which is a decidedly Jewish name. And he was in Jerusalem during the Passover. So he may well have been a, simply an, an expatriate Jew living in North Africa. We, we don't know. In, in fact, there, we do know that there was a huge Jewish community in North Africa. And later on, there was a great Christian church that sprang up in North Africa following the crucifixion. You know, in fact, one of the one of the great saints of in all of history and all of church history is Saint Augustine, who was from Hippo. Wouldn't you like to be from a place called Hippo? But that's that's a city in North Africa. So anyway, Simon may have been black, or he may have been a Jew who had just returned from Africa to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now Simon does, however. For many people, and, and we'll, for our purpose of study, we'll start here. He does seem to represent, whether black or Jew, every oppressed minority ever forced to carry out society's dirty laundry. He seems to be sort of the, the corporate garbage man of culture. You know, he's, it's, here, you, you carry the cross. The, the power structure and the empire of Rome... The theological and ecclesiastical superstructures of the day had already made the decision for crucifixion. But now they need somebody to do the dirty work. And Simon of Cyrene seems to be the guy that's handy by the side of the road. And it says that Simon was compelled to carry Jesus' cross. They forced him to do this. And, and we have in response to that, in, in our mind, we have this sense, therefore, in our earthly material view of justice and our sort of earth upward view of justice, we seem to have the sense of, of uh, wanting to say that must make him and, and, and make people who suffer like him somehow to be right with God, that, that it'll come out right for them in the end. However, we have to remember the, the divine understanding of eternal justice does not always, in fact, very rarely does it line up with our sense of justice. See, there's something within us, for example, that says, surely everybody who was killed in an, in an Auschwitz oven went straight to heaven. However, the fact of the matter is that hell is full of people who died in this world as victims. In, in C.S. Lewis's great book, The Great Divorce, there is this, which, by the way, has nothing to do about divorce. It's talking about the the, the break between God and man. Uh, but, but there's a story in the book of, of, of a man who, has com who committed murder, but he's in heaven. Now, it's, it's an allegory now. So 
he, he meets a, a friend, uh, uh, while he's in heaven, he meets a friend of the man whom he murdered, and he invites this man's friend to come into heaven with him. And this, this man is so smug and self-righteous, and he says, well, if they let you in here, I don't want to be in here. And the murderer says, but, but I, I've been forgiven. I've been redeemed. It, it's all, all okay now. I'm allowed to stay. And the friend says, well, that's fine for you, but what about Harry? He's the one you killed. Where is he? And uh, the forgiven mur murderer says, you know, you, you can't look at it that way. You can't understand it that way. But anyway, with Simon, here's a guy standing by the side of the road. And this mean Roman guard grabs him off the side of the road and forces him uh, to, to forces the cross onto his back and he compels him to carry it through the midst of a screaming mob being pelted by the garbage that was meant for Jesus because as the, as the crowd, as the frenzy grew, they're throwing things. So the objects that were meant to hit Jesus must have hit Simon as well. So we see that, we read this, and so, you know, we, we say to ourselves, this, this being compelled into the crucifixion event surely earned him a place in heaven, but we have no documentary evidence that that is the case. Now, there are stories and there are church traditions surrounding Simon of Cyrene that, that he was converted, that he did become a follower of Jesus Christ, but that's all we have is tradition and stories. We don't know that. Um, this is a cameo appearance, and, and that's all it really is. Ne nevertheless, there, there is something in us that makes us want to say that because he was compelled to carry the cross, that this event must have some special meaning to him and have some sort of eternal effect on him. However, the fact of the matter is that in the naked language of the scripture, he is simply one of those innocent bystanders compelled into historical events that are far beyond his comprehension far beyond his power to change, but they do not necessarily earn him any kind of place in heaven. I mean, there are, there are people uh, in history, thousands upon thousands of people who have been plowed under by the chariot wheels of the tyrants who conquer nations. You know, as kingdom, kingdoms fall to kingdoms, there have been those who have become victims to oppression and war and famine and pestilence. But with, in the midst of all that, we cannot allow our minds to be confined to our human, petty understanding of eternal justice because here's the reality of it. Salvation comes through the blood of Jesus Christ and nothing else. So when we look at Simon, we can't say, well, surely he's in heaven for carrying the cross of Jesus. No, no, no. Good works don't get you, don't, don't get you there. It's only through the blood of Jesus. That's our only assurance of heaven. Uh, uh, listen to this, think on this. You know, we, we have a tendency to think that being a victim in this world assures me that I will not be a victim in the next. But the truth is that can happen and that is a twofold tragedy. I mean, it's a twofold tragedy if I live as a victim in this world and then I die a godless death and perish eternally in the next. I mean, wouldn't that be horrible? Therefore, what that says to me is that if there is anybody in this world that needs to hear the gospel message, it's the poor and the oppressed. How horrible would it be for them to go through life as poor and oppressed and then to pass into eternity godless without finding salvation in Christ? The, 
You know, the, the, and isn't that really what Jesus said? He said, I've, come, I've been anointed by God to declare good news to the poor. The, the guy that's, that's being forced at the sword point to carry the cross of Jesus, who, who may or may not ever understand its grace and its theological implications for his own life, that man is still in need of the gospel message. Now, now having said that, since, since we don't know the end result of this man who plays this fleeting cameo role in the crucifixion event. Let's just suppose for, for a moment for that, that it's, and this is just supposition because nobody knows, but let's suppose for a moment that the church tradition and those stories that we've heard are actually true. And that, let's suppose that he does get converted as a result of this event. So let's, let's suppose that he carries the cross uh, out to the hill of Golgotha, then being released by the soldiers, instead of melting away into the crowd and fleeing for his life, he stands there and he watches the crucifixion. Then seeing Christ crucified, he identifies him as the Son of God. He repents of his sins. He believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and he then becomes a great disciple of Jesus. So let's just suppose that for a moment. What would that teach us? What does that teach us? Well, it teaches us this. In Simon, in that example, we, we can see a model of the Christian life. I'm showing you both sides of Simon Cyrene, both possibilities. One possible scenario is that, it, that, that, is, is that of the oppressed minority forced into the event, but not really comprehending it, perhaps not receiving it. But the other possibility is a guy who's caught up in all of these huge spiritual events, who, who does repent and he is converted and becomes a follower of Jesus. What can we learn from that side of it? Well, we can learn three things. Identification, participation, and resurrection. Identification, participation, and resurrection. First, he was willing to identify with Jesus. Now, perhaps at first he was compelled to it. How many of you would, would say that the first time you ever went to church, the first time that you ever brought, were brought into a meaningful encounter with the gospel, uh, that, that somebody had to get you there? You know what I'm talking about? Somebody had to drag you, invite you, twist your arm, buy you a meal, whatever. They had to, somehow or another, you were almost dragged into that event. You know, I, I know that, that, um, that, that the summer youth camp that I attended when, I was between my junior and senior year where, where I, that's where I really received the Lord. I grew up in church and I knew the Lord, but that's when I, I would say that's when he really, I really fully surrendered to him. And that's, that's when I say I got saved because um, it was full and it was complete. And, but, but, but to get to that youth camp, honestly, what happened was I was almost guilted into it by my mom. So what happened is she heard in church that this youth camp was coming up. And so she talked to my younger brother, Mark, and, and he said that she come, came to me and she said, well, your brother, Mark, said that, that uh, he would be willing to go to camp, that he would go if you would go. And she knew that I would feel bad if my brother wanted to go, but then he didn't go because I didn't go. So, so in essence, she kind of guilted me into it. In a, in a way, you could say she looked at me and said, you carry the cross, <laughs> I was, I was sort of compelled into that event. How many of you here would say something like that is that there's something like that in your experience as well? Let me, let me see your hand. Anything, anybody else? Yeah. Now, here's the thing. At that point, you see, you're compelled into the event. You're forced into the event. But there must come a point 
where spiritual, faith, emotional, psychological, whole man identification occur, occurs. Where Simon, struggling through the streets of Jerusalem, reaches a point in his mind and in his spirit where he says to himself, I'm no longer being compelled to, to this event. I carry his cross because I identify with him. It's a joy to carry his cross. That's the moment I'm talking about. It's the moment where, when we identify with Jesus. And isn't that, isn't that what it says about Moses? By faith, Moses decided not to live in the palaces of Egypt, but he identified with the people of God. At first, he was almost forced into it, but, but eventually and gradually, he owned that identification boldly. Second thing is participation. He participated in the crucifixion of Jesus. There, there's an old hymn. I don't know if any of you have heard this, but it says this. It says, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? Anybody heard this? It's, it's not real, real well-known hymn, but must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. So there is a sense in which Jesus was crucified for me, obviously. But there's another sense in which Jesus has commanded me and you, if any man would come after me, then he, like Simon of Cyrene, must take up his cross. And he must participate in this crucifixion event. He needs to get in on it and then march behind me, follow me. And that brings us to the third point and the great hope. If identification and participation uh, align me with Jesus, if, if I identify with him and participate with him in his crucifixion, he identifies and participates with me in my humanity. And therefore, I have the right to identify with and participate with him in his resurrection. If I carry the cross... I also get to rise to the skies. If Jesus went to Calvary, I also go to Calvary. However, if his tomb is empty, my tomb is empty. My tomb is empty. Now listen, when the day comes, don't look for me in a box. I'll, I'll be gone. I, I will not be there. Uh, someday you're going you're gonna to read in the paper that, that somewhere that old Pastor Dave is dead at 80, well, say 94, <laughs> I'm going to give myself a nice long life. And, and when you hear that, don't believe it. Don't believe it because I'll be more alive than I've ever, ever been. We identify, we participate, then we receive his resurrection power. All right, let's move on. Now in verses 23 and 24, we see that the next of these cameo, cameo appearances, and this is a, a completely unnamed person. We don't know anything about him other than the action that he took. So let's look at verse 33. And when they came to a place called Gol Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now, you read that and you say, what is this gall? Well, this is an anesthetic that is, that is being lifted up to Jesus. It, it was an act of mercy. Uh, it was often given to condemned criminals as they hung on the cross to, to dull the pain, to sort of ease it out. Now, it's not, this part is not in Matthew, but in one of the other accounts, while Jesus is there on the cross, he cries out and he says, I thirst. And then somebody lifts up to him this vinegar wine, this soured wine mixed with gall. And, 
And there is an anesthetic effect to it. It's a very customary thing during the time. So Jesus puts his mouth to it. He squeezes down on it and sucks it up to take nourishment for his thirst. However, the minute Jesus realizes that it's this wine mixed with anesthetic, he turns his head away and refuses to drink. He says, this is the cup that God prepared for me. You can't prepare another one. What was it he prayed in Gethsemane? He said, Father, take this cup from me. Isn't that what he prayed? Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to drink from this cup of pain. Nevertheless, he said, it is your will. And so I will drink it. I will drink it to the dregs. I will drink, drink it to the very, very last drop. Therefore, he said, I will not shy away from the very depth of the pain. Don't diminish this for me. But who is the man holding the anesthetic up to the crucified Christ. I mean, I, I don't think he's a bad person. I, I think his intentions, intentions are good, but they're also, I think, very likely shallow. He, he's miss, missing the point. To, it, it, in a way, it's a pathetic gesture of applying a salve to his own conscience. You can see a clear example of this in American culture and advertising, and I'm talking about uh, ads that advertise beer and other alcoholic beverages. They, they put out these, really, these pathetic ads urging people to drink responsibly, you know, to be moderate in the way they consume their product. Listen, that, that's, that's like handing somebody a, a, a loaded gun and saying, put this to your head and pull the trigger and I'll call the ambulance. You know, it's, it's, just, it's, it's, it's just some smug beer company executive sitting back in his office in St. Louis saying to himself, I've sent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people into a godless eternity with, through alcohol consumption, and I can't live with myself, I can't sleep with myself, therefore I will hold the sponge of this anesthetic up to the crucified corpse of the American people. And we see that and we say, shame, shame, I, I, we are not fooled. We're not fooled. You don't care about those people that are drinking. In fact, you want them to drink irresponsibly because you want to sell as much as you can. But here's a guy who watches Jesus being crucified. He stands there with his hands in his pockets while they nail him to the cross. And he says to himself, oh, poor guy, let's just dull that pain a little bit. But he missed the entire point of the event. He failed to identify his gesture as pitiful and it's in its ineffectual futility. It would have been better for him had he had he wielded a hammer than to have wielded the anesthetic to dull the pain of the cross. And the reason for that is because the pain of the cross is this poor guy's only hope. And he doesn't even know it. He keeps trying to dress up the scandal of the cross. Make it hurt a little less. Paint a picture of it with a little less gore, a little less blood. Make Jesus scream not quite so loudly. To make it not so horrible. To make it not so agonizing. You, you, yes, we're, we're going to crucify Him. Oh yes, we're going to crucify Him. The, the prophets demand it. P-R-O-F-I-T-S. The prophets demand it. Our convenience demands it. It must happen if I'm to remain in my place of power. He's going to be crucified, but... Let's make it not so bad. You know, the thing about Christianity that scandalizes modern America is not how good it is, it's how bad it is. It's the gritty, nasty, bloody horror of the cross. 
we not only want to anesthetize, you know what I'm trying to say, anesthetize, that's the, I'm just going to get the emphasis on the wrong, right syllable. We, do, we want to anesthetize the, the agonized Christ. But the truth is, we also want to drink it ourselves. We, we, we don't want it to hurt quite so badly, and we don't want to feel it. But the reality is, the closer we are to the agony of His cross, the more real our understanding of what it's all about. I heard Dr. Mark Rutland tell a story some time back about, he told a story about showing this movie about Jesus to the Ashanti people from the Ashanti region in modern-day Ghana. His ministry, the ministry he was working with at the time, they, they bought a film to use for evangelistic purposes in, in Africa, and they owned one of only two copies in the entire world of this film on the life of Jesus in the Twi language. Now, if you don't know what that is, that's the language of the Ashanti people. And, and, and before this, before they had this movie, when they would show a movie about Jesus, what they did is that they would turn off all the sound from the, from the movie, from the projector, and then somebody would stand there with a microphone who spoke in the language of Twi, and then they would play all the parts of the movie over the microphone. It was just horrible. It was just awful. And so Dr. Rutland's ministry got this movie, and they were so excited about it, and they showed this film. First time they showed it, it was in this little village in Ghana. The, the entire village was there. The, the chief was there in all of his chief's garb, you know, leopard skin, and, and, and all of his, his sub-chiefs were there sitting on the front row next to the chief. I mean, it was, it was a big deal. I mean, the Americans are going to show a movie. Well, they start the projector, and the movie starts, open, it opens with Jesus walking beside the shore, and Jesus looks into the face of Peter, and while Peter is casting his nets, and in English, the, if you watch the movie, in English, Jesus says, Good morning, how are you? But when Jesus of Nazareth uh, leans into that camera and says to that audience that, that same phrase, only he said it in twee, they heard this, they all started, sh started shouting, Yay! Yay! I mean, they were just started cheering. Yay! Yay! I mean, it was, they were going, just going wild. They, they, had to, they were going so crazy, they had to turn the projector off. Dr. Rutland turned to his, the African guide that was with him there, and, and he said, what's, what's going on here? What, they're they're going to riot. What's this all about? And he said, he looked at him and said, Dr. Rutland, they never thought about Jesus speaking to you. He said, everybody that's ever told them about Jesus was, was white and spoke English. He said, now all of a sudden, you've, you've completely blown their minds because now they have a Jew speaking twee. They were just blown away. It was just amazing. And they, they finally calmed everybody down and they went on uh, through the rest of the film. Dr. Rutland was just amazed at the things that, that, that related to the Ashanti people that, that he just had missed. You know, in one scene, Jesus was in the marketplace, and he was talking about vegetables and farms and, 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 and crops. You know, he often used everyday events and those sort of things. And, and he would, as he's talking, he would say some little tiny word, and they would, just, they would just begin to laugh. I mean, they would roar hearing Jesus speak tweet. And, uh, and, and Dr. Rutland, he said, he said, I stood there watching this. He said, it's, I'm seeing a first century audience listen to Jesus preach. 
It, it, it was amazing. He, he was just shocked. They were watching the movie and he was watching the audience. It was just completely incredible. However, when they came to the crucifixion, when they nailed Jesus to that cross, those people began screaming and crying. Women fell to the ground weeping and screaming, He's innocent! He's innocent! He's innocent! And they were just terrified. I mean, they were weeping. They had to turn the projector off and talk to them, uh, to them about it. They had to guide them through it. Dr. Rutland wondered to himself, what, what, is, what is happening here? And he suddenly realized that we in the West, in America, in our churches, that we have dulled ourselves to the pain. We've become accustomed to it. See, Jesus wouldn't drink the anesthetic, but we did. We did. You know, one of the things about, one thing about the crucifixion scenes in, in American churches, the, the, the way we portray it, the, the way it's kind of, it's at least to a degree sort of sanitized for the viewing audience. Uh, because honestly, if it was really the way it looked, we would we would just turn people's stomachs. They would just walk out the door. And in a way, that's almost worked against us. It becomes not much more than, you know, every Easter, oh, here comes Jesus again with that fake blood on his back. You understand what I'm saying? However, these people, they felt every hammer blow. That hammer fell and the nail went through his hand and that hand quivered and, and they screamed, ah! And when they pushed that crown of thorns down onto his cranium and blood spurted out onto his forehead, I, I mean, women fainted and children screamed. And, but you know what? When Dr. Rutland gave the altar call that night, every single person in that village came forward because every single person had experienced the crucifixion, and they saw it in the reality of the horror that was there. The next cameo I want to look at is found in verse 38. It says, simple, simple sentence. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on the left. Now again, we don't know anything more about them other than the fact that they are reported in the in the. Uh, gospel about, about the events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus. That's all we know. Now, Matthew doesn't say very much at all. He just simply says there were two robbers being crucified with Jesus. But Luke gives us a little bit more detail about the role that these two men played in the, in the uh, crucifixion events. So look at Luke 23. We're going to pick it up in, in verse 39. This is what it says. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged uh, railed at him, railed at Jesus, saying... Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the true reward of our deeds. But the man, this man has done nothing wrong. And he, said to, and, and he said, listen to this, this is amazing. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, here we see two men making this short cameo appearance in the crucifixion events. And, and, and the response of these two men could not be any more different. They are as different as night and day. One of the men actually 
joins in with the mocking crowd and he begins saying, hey, I thought you were the Messiah. Aren't you the Christ? That's what I heard. Why, why don't you do something about this and, and save us while you're at it? And he, his response was filled with, with, with was, was completely self-centered. It was all about, why don't you save us? And it was filled with his anger. So he lashed out at Jesus and lashed out at the world. But the second man's response was completely different. He looked at that first man on the, on the other cross and he said, are you crazy? Are you crazy? Do you not fear God at all? You're, you're suffering the very same sentence that this man is. You're, you're being crucified on a cross just like him. What makes you think you have the right to mock him when you're, doing, you're going through the very same thing. And he says, you, you think you can rail at him and mock him without consequences? We're suffering these things because we deserve them. We got caught. We knew what the consequences were if we got caught, and we got caught. We're dying because we're guilty, but this man is innocent. He's not guilty of anything at all, and yet he is dying the very same death that we're dying. This is injustice. And then that man turned to Jesus and says what I find to be one of the most unbelievable, amazing statements of faith in the entire Bible. He turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What? I mean, do you, do you find... Uh, this just a kind of a blinding faith? Do you see that? I mean, does anybody else in this see this? Uh, uh, th this is an astonishing thing that this man's first meaningful contact with Jesus is at a moment when Jesus seems to be totally powerless. Jesus is being destroyed by the combined weight of Rome and the Sanhedrin. And this man looks at this man who has been beaten so badly. Scripture tells us that you couldn't even recognize him as a human being. And he looks at this man hanging on the cross and says, hey, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What kingdom? He's dying on the cross. What kingdom? I mean, how in the world... Does he identify this seemingly God-forsaken wretch that's hanging on a cross as a king? What faith? What faith? And the contrast between these two seems to me to be the contrast between those who enter the kingdom and those who sulk and, and stew in their own bitter juices and then die after living godless, destructive, hurtful Wounded lives. I also see some cameos in the other mockers that are at the foot of the cross. So I want to deal with them very briefly. We see the, the cameo of cruel mockery. This is cruel mockery. It, it, this, is the, this is the boxer who is not content to just defeat his opponent, but he wants to stand over him, leering and mocking and shouting, I am the greatest, you're nothing, you're trash. He wants to pummel him to dust, but he also wants to humiliate him. This is the football player who is not content to score the touchdown, but he, he wants to slam the ball into the turf and he turn, wants to turn around and mock his opponent and belittle him as if his opponent is nothing. This is the CEO who is not content simply to be a corporate raider, but he wants to drive his opponent into bankruptcy. 
You know what? These kinds of people always hang around executions and they always stink of death. Listen to the unintended double meaning of some of their words. Matthew 27, 39 through 43 is interesting. This is what it says. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Now that doesn't mean anything to us, but that's an ancient symbol for, of saying he's crazy. It's sort of like our modern equivalent would be going, hmm, you know, he's a little messed up here. He's, he's crazy. He's crazy. And this, this guy hanging on the cross, he's crazy. So they, they're wagging their heads and, and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with, with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. So they start off by saying, you said you'd destroy the temple. Well, destroy the temple there, big guy. Go ahead, do it. What, what they can't understand is that they are beholding the destruction of the temple of which he spoke. They're mocking him for not destroying the temple while his temple is being destroyed. He was talking about the temple of his own body. They're looking at it, but they are blinded by their own mockery. They can't see it. Look at verse 42. They said he saved others, but he can't save himself. Well, they were kind of close, sort of close on that one, but they were wrong. It wasn't that he couldn't save himself. It's that he wouldn't save himself. He saved others by not saving himself. The end of verse 42 is interesting. They said, he is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. In the first place, it's a lie. It's a lie. If he had come down from the cross, they would not have believed in him. You say, why, why you say that? Why would you say that, Pastor Dave? Well, it's because they had not believed in him when he had cast out demons. They had not believed in him when he had raised the dead. They had not believed in him when he caused the blind to see. They had not believed in him when, they, when he opened deaf ears. They had not believed in him when the lame leaped for joy. They had not believed in him when, they, when he turned water into wine. They had not believed in him when he raised a, 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 a dead man from the grave. They, they, they would not have believed in him just because he performed another miracle. There was nothing more that they had made up their mind. They were ignoring all of those things. And in the same way, they would made up some sort of excuse and ignored him coming across. I hear it all the time from people in self-righteous, sanctimonious, self-pity. You know, somebody crosses their arms over their chest and they say, well, if God's real, then let him fill in the blank, whatever, something, you know, let him, let him dance to my tune. Let him do what I want him to do. Let him prove himself that way and do whatever I say. Then I'll believe in him. If God's real, then let him speak to me in an audible voice. Then I'll believe if God's real, let him perform some miracle. Then I'll believe him. And I say, no, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. It never works. I've known people who saw God work a miracle in their life. No other explanation. And then they play it off as some strange coincidence. I've seen people say those kind of things. Well, if God is real, let him do this. And then God in his mercy and his grace said, okay, I'm going to do that. And he did it. And, they, and then they said, oh, well, that was just coincidence. See, 
aside, that's the reality of human nature. But aside from all those things, we also have to remember, God will not dance to my tune. Second thing about that statement is this. What a horrible thing it would have been if Jesus had come down from the cross. That would have been horrible. If he had come down from the cross, we would have nothing in which to believe. The only reason we have something to believe is that he, is that he did not come down. The hope for every one of us in this room is that Jesus refused to yield to their mockery. I mean, what if Jesus had said, all right, I'm tired of this. I'm going to show you. And then he popped the nails out of his hand and then he just stepped off the cross and floated down to the ground. Listen, even if a few of them had, had knelt down on the ground and said, oh my goodness, you are the son of God. In that moment, the sacrifice has not been made for our sins. So our salvation and the redemptive plan of God for all of humanity would have been completely spoiled. Well, verse 43 is a fascinating one. He says, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. He says, he trusts in God. If God wants him, let God do something for him. He says, for he said, I am the son of God. Well, if he's the son of God, then God will take care of him. It's obvious he's not the son of God because he's still on the cross. But the fact of the matter is, Hebrews says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. See, you think of it like this. The fact that he endured the cross is not proof that he was not God's son. But it's proof that he was God's son, that he was carrying out God's plan. Let's move on. Let's look at verses 57 through 60. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut out in the rock. And he, and he rolled a great stone to the, uh, to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Now, Joseph of Arimathea is representative of a rare breed of men uh, that, that many of you have known. I've known some of these men, but, and, and they are a delight to me. They're a delight to the kingdom, and I believe they are a delight to God. That they are men with whom God has seen fit to trust with great wealth, but it does not blind them to the events of the cross. You know, one of those is is actually uh, the owner. What's the 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 craft store? uh, The Hobby Lobby. One of those is is the owner of Hobby Lobby, man of great wealth, but he gives millions to missions every year. That's the kind of man I'm talking about who in their wealth, they're, they're bold and they're brave. Listen, jo- Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea he, was, he was bold and he was brave. Uh, Joseph might well have gone before Pontius Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus only to have Pilate look at him and say, oh, you want the body of Jesus? I tell you what, how about if we just put you right beside him? If you want him, you must be one of those people that's going to stir up more trouble. I'm just going to take care of this right now. You're not going to be be any trouble to me. I'm just going to kill you just the way Jesus was killed. See, Joseph makes this public identification with a vilified criminal man while while that that man who'd been crucified, his closest friends are in hiding. They're hiding, but Joseph is there saying, I want the body. The boldness of this man. Peter, he's under a bed somewhere. 
Andrew's hanging out at a friend's house. James is probably, you know, hunkering down in his closet somewhere. And who knows where Thomas is? I, I doubt we would know. I'm sorry. But anyway, but Joseph of, of Arimathea, he's willing to, to lay his fortune and his future and his body on the line in the presence of the governor. He was bold. He was brave. He was generous. He doesn't say, well, I, I believe, let, give me the body of Jesus because I, I believe that we'll be able to find a tomb somewhere. We'll find some place to put him. It, it was a bold stroke of unaffected generosity that, in, in, that he says, bury him in my grave. The, the tomb that has been hewn out for me, that's been prepared for me, bury him there. I can find someplace else for me. Give him my tomb. The third thing is he was practical. And I found that many of these people, not only are they generous and brave and bold, but, but they also, they, 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 they not only give what is needed, but they seem to have this premonition about what is needed. They, they seem to know what is called for and they do it at the right time. Joseph, he acted practically and decisively to do what was needed. I mean, listen, Mary was in no condition to be making funeral arrangements. He paid for everything. He took care of everything and he handled it all personally. And it was timely. You know, he, he might have said to himself, he may have, may have said, well, you know, I want to do something. So he may have made some bold statement. Well, if he does rise from the dead, I'll give him a million dollars. Or he might have said, well, if he rises from the dead, you know, in that point in time, then we really know. And so in that case, I'm going to buy him a van and a speaker system and we'll, we'll go on the road together. We'll make an evangelistic uh, 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 tour. However, what Joseph did is that he identified at the moment of need, not at the moment of success. And that's a rare breed, brethren. Whether they're rich or whether they're poor, whether they, they're, they are uh, those who give out of a decidedly middle-class blue-collar sal salary, but they boldly identify with Christ and they give generously, and they do what's needed at the time it's needed, or, or whether it's someone who gives away millions of dollars, they are a rare breed. I'll tell you this, th those who refuse to cut corners with God in a moment of need are, are rare in the kingdom as well. You know, mo most people, they, have, they keep a very clear ledger book of what they give to God. They give, and they may even give a lot, but they know every last dime that they gave, and they want an accounting of every last dime. You know, a lot of people cut corners. They say, well, I, I, I'm not going to give my tithe this month because I went and visited two nursing homes. So I did my part. Or others say, I'm not going to give my tithe this month. I mean, I bought no groceries for a neighbor in need. So that's what I'm going to, I'm not going to do that other stuff anymore. I'm just, I'll, I'll just justify this. I'll cut these corners. But, but Joseph of Marimathea gave generously. He gave boldly. He acted decisively. He did what was called for. He did it when it was needed. And he did it, listen, he did it when there was no visible proof that, he, that his generosity would be rewarded. Didn't know anybody would notice it. See, because we know that there is a 27th chapter of Matthew where we're told about Joseph of Marimathea. But Joseph didn't know that. He didn't know that was going to be there. He didn't know that he'd be recorded in history. All he knew was that he was giving his grave away in this beautiful garden in the suburb of Jerusalem. And, he, and he, all he knew was that he had given, his, uh, 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 given away his grave to a guy who had been crucified as a failed Messiah. 
out, out, and honestly, out of all these cameos, I really love Joseph. I love his practicality. I love his decisiveness. Now, listen, we're, we're going to close with just one contrasting comparison, and, uh, uh, and then we'll be finished. I want to make this contrast, then we'll be finished. And the contrast I want to make is between the guards at the tomb and the centurion at the foot of the cross. Our final two little cameos. So look at verse 50 through 54, Matthew 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He gave up the ghost. And behold, the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were, were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after, it, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and, and, and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Now turn to chapter 28 and we'll, con we'll contrast that man with the guards in this passage and then we'll be finished. Verse 11, Matthew 28. They, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest, all that had taken place, the, the stone rolled away, the, the, the body being gone, angels appearing, everything. Everything that they had been through, they told them all. Verse 12, and, and when they had assembled with the, with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while, while we were sleeping. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. We're, we're going to take care of you. Don't worry, because they, see, it would be a death sentence if they had fallen asleep on their guard, on their post. And so he said, he, they know that that's what gonna, their objection is going to be. He said, don't worry, we'll, we'll cover you. You don't have to worry about it. We'll take care of that. So, so it says, so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the, the guards at the tomb, think about this. In the face of the resurrected Christ, they saw this happen. They saw the resurrection. They saw the angels show up on the, on the, on the scene. In, in the light of the promised eternal unity with God, in, in the face of all this, they yielded to the horrifying bondage of money. For money, they lied about God. It's one thing to take money and, and, and lie about men, but they took money and lied about God. Whew. It's a little risky for me. They denied the resurrection even though they had seen it. They denied the proof of eternal life and, 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 and they did it all for the sake of that which was dead in their own hands because money has no life, money has no power to save. For that which was dead, cold, hard, gold coins in the palm of their hands, they denied the resurrection of the Son of God and they told a lie. However, the centurion, the centurion from the depths of depravity and uh, brutality and paganism received a lightning bolt of, of a faith revelation. You know, some in the face of miracles went blind and they saw nothing. They saw nothing but a threat to their own power. That's what happened with the Pharisees. But the centurion, in the face of the horror of the crucifixion, saw God and believed. 
I'm going to close with this story. I heard about a man from Georgia named Clayton. He was an elderly man, and, and he had served as a soldier in World War II. He told the story of a time when he and his company were walking along in this narrow lane, this little road in France at the height of the Battle of the Bulge. It was freezing cold. Snow was knee deep. As they were walking down this narrow, narrow road, he, he, he heard this voice, someone behind him say, Clayton, get in the ditch. And he stopped and he turned around, looked at his soldiers and said, who said that? And the soldier said, nobody said anything. And he walked another 10 or 15 yards and he heard the voice behind him again and spoke again. And, and, and in telling the story, he says, it was not like an inner voice. He said, he said, I heard a male voice behind my head as clear as I'm talking to you today. Right now he heard this and the voice said, Clayton, get in the ditch. And he stopped and he turned around and again, again and he said, who said that? And they said, Sarge, nobody's talking. And he said, okay, everybody in the ditch. And they were no sooner off the road when a 50 caliber machine gun opened up and sprayed the entire road. Every one of them would have been killed. And as he lay there in, in the mud in that ditch while those machine gun bullets were whizzing over his head, he heard that voice speak again and the voice said to him, Clayton, I am the Lord your God. And Clayton yielded his life to God just like that. He now he had, he had two sons who, who are now serving the kingdom as full -time, in full-time ministry. Clayton was a layman who never had a job more exalted than being the director of purchasing for the state of Georgia. He never preached. He wasn't much of a Sunday school teacher. Nevertheless, in the face of, of, of bombing, death, blood, horror, and the, and the agony of global conflict that, that, that took the lives of millions, that, that turned the hearts of millions cold and bitter toward God, Clayton Turner heard a voice in the ditch that said, I am the Lord your God. The centurion looked up into the face of the cross and saw an agonized human being, dead, spirit having departed, his head slumped over on his chest. The book of Isaiah tells us that he had been so tortured by that point that he didn't even look like a human being. But what glorious miraculous, magnificent hand. What spirit reached down from heaven and pulled the scales from the eyes of this man so that he looked at this pitiful, wretched form and said to himself, that must be the Son of God. Oh, that God would pull the scales from our eyes and we'll see Jesus for who he really is. Let's pray together. Father, as we come into your presence, we're just so thankful for, your, for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for the cross. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that comes through the, the blood of Christ and that washes away all sins. And God, we, like the centurion, we want to have our eyes open clearly. We want to see Jesus for who he is. And Lord, as we, as we behold the horror of the cross... Lord, help us to understand and feel the horror of it so that we can 
find the, the true joy in it. That as we behold the horror of the cross, we begin to realize that horror was meant for me. And yet he took it upon himself. And now because he took it upon himself, because now I can identify with his crucifixion, now I get to participate in his resurrection. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to rejoice in that. Pray, God, that you'd help us to live our lives that way, that nothing else would matter the way, uh, nothing else would matter more than you, that we would live our lives for you at the center of everything. And we give you thanks and praise for all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.